welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back. And thanks for making a commitment to learning again with us, your host. I am Jordan Porter, still joined with Yvonne Brandenburg. Hey, hello, I hope everybody's hello. January is going amazing. And the start of 2020 is this month. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of excited about that. I just hope that the holiday crazies are like dying down a touch now. Yeah. I've seen a lot of cool cases though recently. <laughs> Yeah. So we are actually recording this on uh, New Year's Day. <laughs> so we survived the holidays. Mm-hmm. I am on call this evening, so hopefully I don't get called in. But yeah, it was a crazy, crazy couple of weeks. Yeah. I have I have stories for one of our, well, I have Ooh. a story for one episode about this really cool, I mean, not for the dog, a really cool like lymphoma case that I can't wait to share. Oh yeah. We, we, we're going to be sharing that in the GI lymphoma. Yeah. So that's Which coming up. I think is, is that two, next week, two weeks, something. One Soon. to two weeks ish. <laughs> Soon. So I, I'm ex I'm, I feel bad for the dog, but I'm excited to like talk about it. Yeah. So, but some housekeeping for this week's episode. So we did have several reviews and comments and just great things that we're super excited to share and we appreciate everybody kind of letting us know that you are enjoying the podcast. So Emily Ann left us a review that says, love the podcast. Being a new tech, I want to learn as much as I can so I can continue to help my patients. I used to work in internal medicine as an assistant, but I've recently moved and started as a GP, started at a GP as a tech. I miss IM and this podcast helps me in many ways. Thank you. So you are very welcome, Emily. I know. I When I read this, I was like, I think this was on Facebook and it's, I, I love it because, you know, she gets to have a little bit of home. I know, like right? internal medicine. It is like, very hey. nice to hear things like that. So we do appreciate it. And yeah. yes, keep learning, Emily, because <laughs> you can definitely use your IM skills in GP. So oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. You hopefully yeah. aren't too far away from home. And <laughs> then I'm really excited about this review. So Tinka Jess from Australia. I'm super excited. This was on the the Apple Podcasts Australia, which is, I didn't even know there was different different zones, but we're in Australia, Jordan. I know. We are Australia. (laughs) We're like taking over the world one country at a time. So Tinka Jess, thank you for your review. It says, just started in internal medicine after seven years in general practice. Me too. So keep it up. Yeah. And then I am loving the content and it is helping me understand the complex diseases we see. Keep up the great work. So oh, similar wow. story to me, which kind of touches my heart because I was also in GP for seven years before moving to IM. And I hope you are surviving those wildfires pretty well. I see those stories about the koalas oh, and it breaks my heart. I know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I hope everyone is, is being as safe as you can. If it's anything like here, I'm part of the California Veterinary Medical Reserve Corp. And Mm -hmm. so I'm sure, I'm sure that you guys have something similar in Australia. And I, and I hope you guys are staying safe. 
Yeah. So it's a little heartbreaking, but thank you, Tink. Just please stay safe, keep listening, and let us know if you want us to talk about anything specific or if you have cool stories that you'd like to share with us, please leave us a comment or send us an email. We do have an email address that you can send things to. It is podcast at internalmedicineforvettex.com. Mm-hmm. So please shoot us over some questions, comments, whatever you'd like to hear. We love hearing from you guys. I think that's it. So we can move forward to our actual disease. This week we are discussing food allergies and sensitivities, or as some people like to call it, it's really a food intolerance, food sensitivities. So food allergies occur when an animal's immune system misidentifies a protein or food additive from a food as an invader rather than a food item and mounts an immune response. Yeah. And and I like to tell clients when we talk about this, it's an inappropriate response, right? There's mm-hmm. there's something going on in the body, whether that's inflammatory responses or other allergies, other severe allergies, and the body doesn't understand what the trigger of these problems is. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of assumes it's this food protein, this food substance, and then labels it as bad. And so now the immune system is going to be attacking it. And, you know, with, with clients, I I like to tell them because a lot of times they don't understand how, how difficult some of these can be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I tell them, I'm like, it's like with people, if you have a peanut allergy, there's some severe things that can happen with peanut allergies, but if you're just sensitive to a peanut, maybe you just get, you know, a little itchy or, you get, you know, a little vomiting or diarrhea. So it really depends on the immune system's level of hate (laughs) for that particular protein. Yeah. So there can be a difference between like a sensitivity and like a true intolerance, which we'll kind of get into, but it can also be a little bit more broken down into like immunological versus a non-immunological response to Mm. food. So immunological is caused by an antibody immune complex or cell mediated immune reaction. Mm -hmm. So those are true like allergies. Like those are, don't feed that to your dog or yourself if you have it versus a non-immunological can be caused by enzyme deficiencies, food toxicities, or pharmacological reactions to food ingredients. So things like chocolate toxicosis, vitamin A or D Mm. toxicosis, food contamination with bacteria, and then specific foods like onions and garlic and and, and things like that. So we are going to be focusing on the immune response though, like the true immunological reactions. Yeah. It's funny because you say that and and I also think of um, copper toxicity. Yeah. And I, I didn't think about that being a non-immunological food intolerance, (laughs) but I mean, it's, that's kind of the definition of it. So that, yeah. that makes sense. So yeah, when I was doing a lot of the like research for this outline, it just it didn't click with me until I was like typing it out that I was like, holy crap, like vitamin D toxicosis really is like a food intolerance, but it's just to mm. something in the food, like within the food versus we right. always think it's like a reaction to like the protein in the diet that causes a food allergy, but it, it's like food contamination and toxins and things like that too. But again, we're going to stick with the protein version of this. We're sticking with immunologic for this episode. Mm -hmm. Cool. Makes sense to me. 
So we do have a blog post on the internal medicine for petparents.com website, and it's under the, the blog post, picking the right therapeutic diet for your dog or cat. And it just gives some basic information as to kind of what to look for, novel proteins versus other diets and, and things like that. So that is a good resource to kind of go back and look on. And we'll talk about it towards the end of this episode, but there's some good resources for like nutritionists if, if you want to discuss with your clients making your own diet, but we're getting to that. But in within a pet's body, there's physical defenses against hypersensitivity to food antigens. And what this means is like your body, your pet's body, cat, dog, mouse, whatever, they have things in place to kind of protect them from food allergies and food sensitivities. So an effective mucosal barrier, if you go back to your anatomy and physiology, you know the layers of the in the GI tract, those mm -hmm. play an important role when it comes to digesting food and how they tolerate certain items that come through. And then oral tolerance generated by a cellular immune system. Yeah, so the cellular immune system, it's kind of interesting. We. <laughs> We had to look this up because <laughs> we don't we don't always remember all of those things. But um, so basically, what they're talking about is within the mouth there there is a specific immune system to help protect you against bacteria and infections and all that. Because if you if you remember correctly, your your mucosa is less cell layers thick than your skin because you want things to transfer. That's why, like when we give caro syrup on the gums or uh, buprenorphine on the gums, it absorbs quickly because there isn't that, you know, like there's capillaries pretty high or pretty, pretty close to the surface. So we want to have that immune system in place. Otherwise the foods that we would eat would have to be sterile to prevent <laughs> an infection. So, yeah. the, you know, the mouth is designed to prevent all those infections and problems, um, which is, which is actually pretty cool. Yeah. And then it kind of leads into, so immunoglobulin A is a very important immunoglobulin within the body. It, it does a lot of things. So we call it IgA for short, but it is in, it's a class of antibodies that work to protect the surfaces of the body from the most immediate, your skin, pretty much all along the respiratory passages, digestive tracts, and exposed parts of the reproductive or urinary tract along with, so what we're focusing on is the GI tract. So you're going to have IgAs concentrated all throughout there. And what those do is they're a group of immunoglobulin proteins known as antibodies. So these different antibody types carry out specific functions that help just kind of protect the body from mm -hmm. things that come through the GI tract. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because the way I remembered it, um, well, the way my students remembered it when I was teaching this is IgA is um, IgA-ness. Oh so that God. was the GI <laughs> tract. So you remembered where it was uh, located. You're welcome. That is something I will never forget. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, okay, thanks guys. Thanks guys for that one. Yeah, so that just <laughs> helped to remember that it was in the GI tract. Nice. Drop some knowledge on you. So kind of leading into like the presentation of what you're going to see pets come in for is not, most of the time we consider this not internal medicine because a lot of these patients yeah. do kind of present with dermatitis and like skin lesions and it's not internal, but we're getting there. So food allergy is 
about 10% as common as atopic dermatitis in dogs and perhaps as common as atopic dermatitis in cats as well. I was going to say, if you remember what atopic dermatitis is, that is, um, so atopy, so environmental allergies, so inhaled things, you know, walking in the grass and the grass is on them and they get dermatitis, so inflammation and, and, and reaction to it. Uh, and so that's food allergy and environmental. Sometimes it's hard to differentiate. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times, like my dermatologist will say anything itchy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's try a food trial first. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a good way to rule out. Most reports don't suggest a certain breed is like predisposed to f- having a food allergy. However, mm. there is like one one report that indicated an increased, they, they said a quote unquote relative risk in Labradors, Westies, and Cocker Spaniels, which I'm certain, cert- 100% <laughs> certain. <laughs> I was going to say, there's only one report that says this. I know. Can we go to clinics and just be like, yes, yes. Yeah. Like I think Bulldogs wasn't on the list and Sharpays weren't on the list because they just assume that's environmental. Mm, But yeah. So labs, Westies and Cockers seem to be more predisposed to having a food allergy. So soft-coated wheat and terriers also tend to show some food hypersensitivities when it's associated with protein losing enteropathy or protein losing nephropathy. So PLE mm. or PLN. And these are the cases that we're going to see here in internal medicine. And those dogs mm. are the ones we're usually already doing some sort of food trial with them, especially if they come in for PLE. Yeah. I, I, most of the ones that we have that have either PLE or PLN, we do some sort of a food trial on them. Yeah. Um, just it, it just, most of the times they need it. Yeah, exactly. Like there's a reason they need a specific diet to control that, which our nutrition people are going to really get on us if we don't dive into nutrition at some point, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, we will. We'll, we'll I get swear. There. <laughs> <laughs> the age of onset is variable. So it, it's really variable. Do you see yeah. this range? It's from two <laughs> months to 14 years of age. <laughs> so basically anything, <laughs> anything. <laughs> Uh, and then most food allergies begin before age one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. So, which I found that a pretty interesting fact. And then in adult onset food allergies, most dogs have been fed the offending allergen for greater than two years, which I have heard this because this is a thing in human medicine too, where mm. you can like develop a food allergy if you eat something consistently long enough. Yeah. And it makes it, again, it kind of goes back to the immune system, right? Like if you're mm. eating something consistently and something triggers your immune system, the, the body could go, wait, was it you know, was it the vaccine? Yeah. Cause, cause you, you know, I'm just saying vaccines because vaccines stimulate the immune system. So yeah. it says, was it the vaccine or was it this fish that I had that I eat all the time mm-hmm. and now I'm having a reaction. So it's like, is it fish or is it the vaccine? I don't know. I'm going to go with both because it can't differentiate it. Yeah. all the time. So and I think that goes into to where like you have those recalls on this food for excessive bacteria in it or excessive mm. vitamin D has been a thing recently. So like your body is trying to fend off one thing that is within the food, but then all of a sudden mm. it becomes like a food intolerance as well to the protein in the diet versus the actual like toxin in the diet. Yeah. So yeah. I found that pretty interesting. And then clinical signs 
we kind of already discussed, but can affect more than one body system, obviously. So the most common sites being dermatologic and then GI. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk about the GI effects really, because that's what we see in internal medicine. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like we, we have a dermatologist in our building mm-hmm. and it's amazing how many times we go wrong department, right? <laughs> like, like they either go, Oh, not us. Or that we go, Oh, not us. So it is, it is hard to sometimes figure out where the best place for these kids is. But, um, you know, when we're talking about dermatologic responses, it's, it's that classic stuff, right? So mm-hmm. generalized, just itching they, they, they itch their face, they itch their neck, their ears, they're, they're causing trauma. So hot spots or scratching up their ears, they have um, miliary dermatitis, they have traumatic alopecia because they're, they're grooming. So like those cats that are excessively grooming and they've, they've done that barbering where they're just naked belly, right? Mm-hmm. Moist dermatitis. <laughs> How many, how many technicians <laughs> did we just lose with that word? I was waiting because you said hotspot and then I was like, oh, is she avoiding it? <laughs> I am not avoiding it. So hotspot or moist dermatitis. And that can be both like most common hotspot areas. I think to me, I think of like around the neck. Yeah. But you can also get it like between the toes, under tail, full, mm-hmm. you know, folds, that kind of thing. And then scaling dermatitis. So all these things can, it, it again, it's hard to differentiate, you know, is it environmental stuff or is it food? Mm-hmm. So our, our dermatologist always puts them on a novel protein diet to mm-hmm. rule that out, to make yeah. sure that there isn't a food component to it. Well, and, and then too, like if they're showing GI signs, it's pretty vague. They're having vomiting yeah and or diarrhea. I see probably diarrhea more often than I see vomiting, but they can have both. But it, I, there was a cool fact that I put and up And we, they also can have regurgitation. Yeah. Yeah. So they can also have regurgitation as well. So a lot of people, I've had a lot of clients say, well, it's like an acid refluxy thing. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. So they do that spit up or regurgitation of that yellow bile. And then GI signs are actually seen in 10 to 15% of dogs and cats percent presenting with cutaneous signs as well. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these, well, not a lot of these pets, but a percentage of these pets can have both signs. Again, medicine, there it's, it's called practicing the art of medicine for a reason, right? You've got all these little things that you have to try to fit and figure out where they go. So again, we'll probably talk about this a couple of times. Is that history? You know, do they have itching and bad skin stuff just like throughout the year, like different seasons, or is it, you know, all year round? And They've also got like some vomiting or regurg or diarrhea. So, you know, we're putting together the pieces. Well, we, along with our doctors, (laughs) but you know, as the team, the, the, the veterinary team is putting together this whole picture to try to identify what's going on. Mm -hmm. And one of the, one of the things too, to kind of keep in mind when, cause we talked about this a little bit with like the, the oral mucosa and the immune system, right? There are some diseases that will actually increase 
how permeable our mucosa is. So things to think about are going to be viral diseases, viral enteritis, parvo. You know, that's that's one thing I know like our ER teams that are are dealing with the parvo pups or our CCU nurses that are really dealing with these kids, we need to be very careful that they don't become septic because their mucosa is now more permeable. So different things are coming in. So they're, because of that permeability, they're also at an increased risk of developing food sensitivities. Yeah. So when you have that inflammation, you have that increased permeability, you're also going to have a hard time digesting the proteins appropriately and absorbing them into the body appropriately. And then you've also got the allergenic or allergic diseases that are going to cause problems with, with the mucosa as well. So it, it can be unfortunately, multiple things that are causing problems that can lead to a food intolerance, a food sensitivity, a food allergy. So, yeah. And I think that's one of those things too, when you're obtaining a history, like I know I've gotten it before where I'm like, so they come in and they say like, yeah, well, my dog's been perfectly healthy aside from when they recovered from parvo two years ago, but now they're extremely itchy. They break with off and on diarrhea occasionally, but we've never changed their diet. We're feeding like a, a store brand diet. Um, and they've always tolerated it pretty well, then it should kind of like mm. ring some bells just to take a like closer look. So they had parvo, they feed like they've been feeding the same food mm-hmm. for several years. And now the dog is kind of breaking out with intermittent diarrhea and having having some allergic response externally as well. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously during your, your history taking, you should get a thorough history of what, what kinds of foods they eat when, you know, when, especially when these guys come in, it's, we'll talk about this multiple times in this episode. It's really important to get the most thorough history you can from them. What diets, you know, what brands of food are they doing the wet? Are they doing dry? Is it over the counter? Do they rotate flavors because their pet, you know, think, get bored with it, which doesn't happen, but I think that's more clients get bored with it. Yeah. Or was there a recent change in the, in the food and you know, they're the, a different protein source or is it a new formula of the food? What, what treats are they feeding that can also play a big role into it? You know, I recently saw an article about rawhides and how mm-hmm. you really shouldn't be feeding them because they're so processed and potentially have a ton of toxins. So that's another thing to think about. That can be like a difficult history to obtain because yeah. I know like my parents are the worst about this where they'll just like <laughs> go to the store and buy like, any food kibble. that's on sale. <laughs> yeah. Like I feed dry food and then you're like, well, what type, like what's in it? Like what yeah. brand, like what store, like anything. And they're like, we just go and buy whatever's on sale. And I was like, please don't do that anymore. Yeah. So it's, it's hard getting that, but you you still have to ask. Yeah. Those are the most frustrating because then you try to find something that they've never had. Yeah, before exactly. Like, well, you've had everything. Yeah. Th- those can definitely hinder your ability to try to treat or <laughs> like do the food trials, which we'll, we'll kind of get mm-hmm. into a little bit, but yeah, getting a thorough previous diet history is really important, especially because if someone did feed like the white fish and potato or whatever, and the dog's did great on it or the cat did great on it for however long they fed it. And then they decided to switch back to chicken and venison or whatever the mixtures are now. And then the pet started having issues again. 
that, that does make a difference. Yeah. And then I think your differential diagnosis list for this could go on and on and on. Yes. <laughs> when you're talking GI disease. Along with skin disease. <laughs> yeah. Your differential diagnosis. I mean, you, you, you kind of throw the kitchen sink at this, right? So gastritis, colitis, pancreatitis, foreign body parasites, heart disease, kidney disease, like all of it, mm-hmm. right? When you're talking about vomiting, diarrhea, anything can lead to that. Mm-hmm. And then when you're talking about derm stuff you know is it is there a flea like one flea can cause a flea allergy dermatitis my my dermatologist talks about leaving food in the bags they come in Mm -hmm. and not switching to like a container because there are mites that can like be in the container and then you put the new food into the old stuff and then it contaminates so you know if they're allergic to that mite well maybe they're getting the mite from the stored food so it's Interesting. It's yeah. I was like, what? There's a mite in food? I yeah, I I was thrown off by that one. Yeah. The moment it turns into skin stuff and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm out. Yeah. Go see the dermatologist. <laughs> Until yeah. it belongs to both of us. And then it's right. And then we get to deal with it. Because then you it. can even have hepatic cutaneous syndrome. Someone someone asked that. We put that on our list, so we do, but they can have skin lesions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. liver disease at the same time. And anyway. So diagnostics, luckily for like, aside from ruling out every possible differential, like (laughs) the diagnostics that include just basically looking for allergies. So you want to run your general lab work again, just ruling out your pancreatitis, liver disease, (laughs) kidney disease, heart disease, like rule out all of your normal stuff first. Like if you have a patient come to the hospital for vomiting or diarrhea or itching or whatever, you should do basics of like, yeah, I was gonna say get your baseline lab yeah. work, your chem CBC light. Yeah. Right. And you should do your baseline diagnostics and internal medicine, which is an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And then and usually a spec CPL or GI panel. Right. I was gonna say <laughs> like, for, for this one, it's like the GI panel would probably be the thing that my doctors go yeah. to, right? So you get your cobalamin, your folate, your TLI, your PLI. Which are beneficial in these cases because sometimes like if you have those like decreased permeability mm-hmm. patients like you're gonna have low b12 as well so you might as well test for it and treat for it as, as well yeah. <laughs> so allergy testing though so allergy testing has actually proven to be pretty unreliable when it comes to like the skin allergy testing as well as the serum allergy testing for food for food yes for food yeah, yeah. yeah. environmental let's, allergies let's are that. different <laughs> yeah for food allergies, it's just not a great way to test for no, them right now. Because it's, again, it's a you have a lot of those patients though who have had a lot of these protein sources as well. Allergy testing proves to be unreliable. So the gold standard for kind of proving that a pet has a food allergy or food sensitivity and is showing symptoms of it is going to be an elimination trial. And for those of you who don't know what an, an elimination trial is, it's a food elimination trial. And we're going to go into depth in just a minute because it's more treatment mm-hmm. than diagnostics. Although it does cross into diagnostics, but we're going to get there in just a second. Yeah. It's like a diagnostic until it works and then it's a treatment. So <laughs> <laughs> So the most common allergens that you're going to want to eliminate that are seen in cats tends to be fish, beef, and dairy products. And then in dogs tend to be beef, dairy products, wheat, chicken, eggs, lamb, and soy. Dogs have it worse, apparently. Cats can eat whatever they want. Just get rid of the fish. I feel like it, I feel like it kind of falls into the whole like what they're being fed. Definitely. 
Because I feel like a lot because of cats, cats are being fed fish, <laughs> like, all the time. Yeah, like, almost every diet out there has fish yeah. in it. And beef is, like, the secondary thing. And then dairy products, like, they're they're not meant to eat cheese and milk and all that stuff. So, that makes sense. Dogs, dogs get everything. Dogs get everything. They're more omnivorous, omnivorous. So, yeah, they get everything. So, it makes sense that they're, unfortunately, going to be allergic to more different yeah. items. So, when you're doing an elimination trial it's required to be complete and balanced and have a high digestibility in the small intestines and then it has limited ingredients the key is limited ingredients so this can be a homemade diet commercial limited ingredient diets or hydrolyzed protein diets which if you don't know the hydrolyzed protein diets is where the protein source has been hydrolyzed or just broken down into smaller molecular weights that are non-allergenic. Yeah, I was going to say, imagine your protein molecule, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's whatever shape it's in. They break it down so the body can no longer tag it as as that protein. Yeah. So it's still all the nutrients and stuff are there, but it, the body can't go, Oh, that's chicken. Like it says, Oh, it's something else with those particles, but it's not chicken, um, which is really cool. And then the, then the immune system doesn't trigger on yeah. it, which is cool. So there's a difference between your hydrolyzed protein diets and then your single source protein diets. Single source protein diets are ideal as well as the carbohydrates though, just because a carbohydrate mm. intolerance can be seen and most commonly involves lactose, which is part of your dairy products. And then yeah. fats are also an important source of calories, especially in elimination diets, because you're getting rid of so many other things that you do kind of need to have a fattier diet to replace that. And it's, it's it, one thing to remember too, is even though a protein is hydrolyzed, there are still going to be some animals that are mm-hmm. allergic to it because and, and they think it's about 10% of those animals that are going to be allergic to the hydrolyzed protein. Even it, so, especially, which one is it that I'm thinking of? I think it's, is it ZD that mm-hmm. has yeah. chicken yeah. liver in it? Yeah. And so most, most of my clients freak out when they see that they're like, ah, it's chicken. And it's like, yes, but mm-hmm. it's broken down, but you're still going to have the potential that they're going to have a reaction to it. So it's not guaranteed, but they're less likely to react to, especially if you can't find another diet. Yeah. And, and I think, so that's why they call it an elimination trial. You're gonna probably not find the right diet on the first try, but you, you could, which would be great. You hope. So when you do a single source protein, (laughs) this kind of goes into, I have it all kind of meshed together in this outline, just because client communication, getting that detailed history to help guide you to which ingredient the animal has not been previously exposed to is going to be key yeah. because then you're going to want to feed that single source protein diet. So like a, a white fish and potato and they have the potato in there because you need the fats and the carbs and not the lactose. You want it to be balanced, but the only protein mm-hmm. in it is going to be your fish versus the chicken, the beef, the turkey livers and whatever else is in it. Mm-hmm. So those are, it's really important to try to figure out what someone's already tried Unless they're like my parents and they've done everything. Well, or I was going to say, or they just like a variety of treats for their animal, right? And so like uh, there's Mm -hmm. uh, duck and potato, but they also make duck jerky. So if they've had like the duck jerky treats before, guess what? You, You can't use that as the food now because the potential is 
they've mm-hmm. been exposed to it, they could be allergic to it. So I usually you know, like we'll ask the client, be like, okay, here's our here's our protein sources. From what we're understanding from you, these two or three, your animal has not been exposed. Which usually to, ends up being like kangaroo. Which one? like yeah which we can't we can't do kangaroo in california oh really it's it's illegal uh kangaroo and alligator we're not allowed to do in california wow which is crazy because for as many alligators that are over here on the east coast (laughs) there's not a lot of alligator diets that get recommended at least not that i've seen we've done kangaroo probably more than i've seen alligator (laughs) yeah i i don't i don't know why but it's illegal in California, well, which is a bummer because I think it was kangaroo. Actually, kangaroo, as of January 1st in California, is no longer legal, which is a bummer because we had so many patients on kangaroo diets recently because it was working for yeah, them. Because- and now we get to do another food trial with them, which is super fun. So kind of getting into the diet trials, these diets should be fed for at least three to four weeks if GI signs are seen and up to as long as three months for dermatological conditions. Yeah. It's, it's crazy that you say that because we usually do six, six to eight yes. weeks is how long we do our trials, but we've also cut them short. If the animal is responding bad. Yeah. Right. Like if they're worse on the diet, you're like, nope, doing something yeah. different. But most of the times you can do, you know, we, we say very strict, very strict. Yeah you know, five to, or six to eight yeah. weeks, but, and like everything is going great. So during that six to eight weeks, the client is being compliant. <laughs> so they're not giving any additional treats. They're not like, we don't even have our clients give any like, uh, like heart guard yeah. because the, those have flavors added to them. If they are doing medications orally or by mouth, <laughs> if they're doing gel capsules, we try to switch them over to like the veggie gel capsules. If you're doing like liquid medications, you're not adding in like the chicken and beef flavor. So it's, it, it is one of those things that sometimes isn't as straightforward as we would like it mm-hmm. to be. And just, you know, make sure that they know, you know, if someone comes over, <laughs> They can give these particular treats, like a high, like whatever, you know, the hydrolyzed protein treat or mm-hmm. one of them that's approved, nothing else orally. That's where ice cubes come into play. Yeah. And if they have kids. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. Like all bets are off. <laughs> I couldn't imagine trying to do a food trial on one of my dogs. I, I, I would fail. I, I would not be yeah. a compliant owner. At the end of that six to eight weeks, everything is going great. Now we can just slowly add in an ingredient yeah which is every seven days if a reaction seen you stop that food obviously and then it's not necessary to to normal yeah it's not necessary to reintroduce food so if people are like let's not rock the boat that's fine now i would be that type of person if i could i would just be like nah we're good yeah i (laughs) say if if it's working and like you've had a dog that's been really difficult to get under control i say don't don't shift it. Just, just go with what's working because nobody wants diarrhea. Nobody <laughs> wants vomiting. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's not fun. Or to be itchy all the time. Like, could you, oh yeah. Like I've had like allergic reactions to medicine that made me like mm. super itchy, like to the point where I was like scratching myself, like to bleed. Like it was, I couldn't Oof. imagine doing that on a daily basis. Anyway. Right. So strict owner compliance is essential. I don't know if we made that clear yet. 
but strict Owner compliance. <laughs> so that means remove treats again like we said hills has this great thing though where they can give you like they give you a recipe that you like if you buy the canned food they'll give you a recipe as to how to make your canned food a treat oh nice so i'll have to find that like link. baking it yeah hmm. it is simple it's like you take a pate you make it into the shape of something and then you bake it that's cool though that they tell you how to bake it yeah nice so remove no raw meats should be fed because they're at high risk for contamination i'm not trying to rock the boat on if people feed raw diet if it works cool but in situations like this it's just because it has such a high risk for bacterial contamination you don't want it to be included in your elimination trial yeah and and they've got that potential increased permeability which means they could potentially become septic or just contract things easier now i know people are going to push back and say that there are some pets that do amazing mm -hmm. on a raw diet we just internal medicine i feel like most there's a lot of us that just don't recommend it yeah. because we have seen complications and <laughs> there's there's been a lot of complications and they're serious complications yeah they do happen i've so seen it's not worth it dogs and cats look amazing on raw diets but i've seen yeah. more dogs and cats be sick from a raw diet than i've seen look amazing this kind of rolls into the, like it's it's a diagnostic tool until it works so if an elimination diet is successful yeah. you need to tell the clients then like this is your pet's diet for the rest of their life unless yeah. they start showing symptoms to that years down the road, which would really be a bummer. Yeah. And I will say that one of the things that my doctor is really adamant about with these, with when we're doing a food trial, we highly recommend the big three, right? So I, my doctors don't get paid for recommending a diet. Like mm -hmm. we, we don't get paid for it. It's a fun rumor. But we, <laughs> it is, it is a fun rumor, but we will recommend Hills, Royal Canin, Purina as kind of the big three of the commercially made food mm -hmm. that is especially a limited ingredient diet. Yes. You're going to find limited ingredient diets and in over the counter foods. There's a huge difference though. Yeah. When you're talking about the big three, they have gone through many food trials mm -hmm. with, with their food, just very similar to drug trials, but they also typically have their manufacturing equipment is solely dedicated for that food because they do not want cross-contamination because if mm -hmm. you have cross-contamination of a different protein source or something else, and all of a sudden an animal is having an allergic reaction to something that they didn't have before, mm -hmm. You know, when we're talking a prescription diet, I mean, they could potentially be liable for that. That's another reason why the three of them, especially, they have very strict quality controls. Yeah. And so they test their food, which is why they have voluntary recalls, because they make sure they check everything before it gets out, <laughs> you know, widespread, yeah. and then the FDA gets involved. That doesn't mean that they don't get involved eventually, but yeah. a lot of times they will do a voluntary recall. So we typically recommend the prescription over an over-the-counter diet just because there is not that control. And so if you have a very sensitive animal, we don't recommend the over-the-counter um, diets. So, yeah. And I think you'll, you'll get pushback because of the cost difference and stuff from clients and that that's kind of inevitable, but 
I think that goes to like, like you said, that cross-contamination where they'll say, well, we've been feeding this store brand diet for a while and the dog was doing better on it. And then we got a new bag and mm-hmm. then started showing symptoms again. And then we got another new bag and now it's back to like being good. Yeah. So I think that kind of falls under where like you can just kind of assume that within like the makeup of that, that bag of food, that there was some sort of cross-contamination mm-hmm. because it's not, it's not monitored usually. Mm-hmm. So the other thing too, that people can look at is how much they're feeding of the diet, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the over, over the counter foods, well, then one of the things they do is they add filler to it to bulk it up. Mm -hmm. So you have to feed a larger volume, but the bag size is about the same, right? So Mm -hmm. you kind of have to look at like how much for that, the weight of that pet. And then, so you're talking cost versus value right? So the cost of a food is how much you pay for a bag, but the value is right. The cost of the the diet versus how much time do you want to spend cleaning up diarrhea? How much time do you want to spend cleaning up vomit? <laughs> how much time do you want to spend with your dog itching severely? How much do you want to spend for your office visits for the additional medications to treat all this stuff versus you buy the dog food. And if they do great with the trial, just stick with it because you're going to end up spending less because you're not dealing with all this other stuff. So when we're yeah. talking to clients, it's, it's really good to tell them about the value of the food, not just the cost of the bag, but the value of it so that they yeah. understand, yes, but we'd like to see you less. <laughs> so yeah, we recommend exactly. the food because your pet's going to feel better. We're going to see you less often. We're going to have to do less medications long-term. So sometimes it, it is kind of just switching that that mindset from mm-hmm. the cost of the bag and remember all the other stuff that, that goes along yeah, with it. Yeah, and this is just one of those diseases that it's kind of like diabetes. You have to have a conversation that most of your workup for a case of food allergies is going to be discussion of like, no, seriously, stick with this diet. Yes, you can buy this expensive brand. Sure, you can buy the store brand. Hell, you can even make your own homemade diet, which I will put uh, links in the show notes, by the way, for nutritionists that we recommend to make said diets, because that is a conversation to be had with people too, if that's what they prefer, Yeah, and is that we would recommend I was like a nutritionist say, to do that. Yeah, exactly. You want to have a nutritionist involved in, there's, there's definitely a couple of them that we can put in the show notes that if they mm-hmm. want to do a home-cooked diet because they don't like commercial diets, you know, you want to have a nutritionist made food. You don't just want Susie who likes cooking to make a diet for their dog. You want a nutritionist involved. Yeah, definitely. Because like the nutritionist make it easy too. Yeah. Like they tell you exactly like what foods to include in your diet. They give you like exact supplements amounts. to add to said diet. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, like exact amounts and how to make it for two weeks and freeze it. That way you don't have to make it every day. And like, it's, it's really good. So I will definitely put those links in the show notes. Yeah. So that way, like if this is something that you guys are commonly seeing, make a worksheet like to give to your clients that says, here's all the diets we recommend. Here's the food trials, please. No treats. Like you can make your own worksheets to kind of go through with clients. Cause again, a lot of this is going to be client communication because you're going to also want to keep in touch with these clients too, over the next six to eight Mm -hmm. weeks, three Mm -hmm. months, but you're going to want to keep in touch with them like every other week just to see how the dog is doing. Yeah. I was going to say your, your client communication is going to be more, it's, it's, 
usually really high with these guys. Right. Well, and you want to avoid the, well, we were doing so great. And so I figured after three months, I would just go ahead and give them a piece of chicken. And you're like, great. Well, and and that's something to tell clients about is sometimes just one bite of food can set them off for a week to two weeks, depending on what it is. So it's not worth it. Sometimes just not worth it. A lot of this episode is more geared towards like the client communication. Well, the end of the episode is geared towards client (laughs) communication. It's the tip of the week. It's really important to discuss with your clients strict diet trials. Again, I don't know if we got that point across. No (laughs) treats. (laughs) Nothing out of the diet trial should be fed. Including medications or supplements. It's really important to remember those things. Probiotics. People don't think about that either. Mm. Like probiotics. and, And you brought up like the heart guard and stuff, which... At one point, they were making flavorless HeartGuard. It was really hard to find, but it came in a tablet. Like recently, and I didn't even know this was a thing. Yeah. Like I remember finding it in GP because we had some people who are on like strict diets. And so I think I I I found it on- It's not as hard to find anymore. I think I found it on Chewy actually, which I didn't even know they made it. So that was really cool. Yeah. I know a lot of these pets, we switched to like a topical- like yeah. revolution or something. Yeah. But yes, like, so you want to talk to them about supplements and like probiotics and things like there's things that you really just want to be sure aren't being added in because people don't think about it. I didn't think about mm-hmm. it. I'd be like, sure. My dog can have a probiotic. It's going to be good for your gut. Right. Oh, just <laughs> kidding. It has beef in it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because everything needs to smell like yeast or beef Ugh. in the veterinary world. Seriously. Yeah. Every medication. And now for the question of the week. So our question of the week is going to be not more. I mean, it's a warm, fuzzy. (laughs) Well, I imagine we might get pictures of like poop sent to us, which is fine too. So the question of the week, do you have any before and after pictures of patients who've done well on an elimination diet? I was thinking more skin. So you have those like (laughs) severely like hair loss cats or dogs that you just you did an elimination trial and then they come back looking like a brand new dog but again you can send me a picture of diarrhea and then a normal stool (laughs) preferably because i'm sure your clients (laughs) sent them to you because i'm all the time (laughs) yeah i i'm what i definitely have received those kind of pictures where i get like it's like three weeks in and someone's like look at their poop it's so amazing you know i my my dog developed food allergies when she was dealing with her evan stuff and so i feel for those clients because you're just (laughs) like oh look more diarrhea and then and you know you take pictures because you're like this is what it looks like today and then when they have the normal poop you're like celebrating Yeah. Because you're like, it's funny. oh my God, it's normal. Holy crap. <laughs> I had a young cat in the clinic yesterday that we were, we were doing like a polyp removal on and the cat pooped in the cage like before the procedure. And I was like, oh my God, is this what normal poop looks like? Like who knew? <laughs> like we never see that in internal medicine. Anyway, if you have before and after pictures with owner permission to post, please let us see those. You can share that on the Facebook page, which is internal medicine for vet techs Facebook page or the podcast group. So internal medicine for vet techs podcast. Yeah, definitely. Um, go check out the, the podcast group because there's some, there's some pretty cool people in that group. Just saying. I know it is, it is getting pretty fun. And then of course you can always answer the question on the actual website, which is internal medicine for vet slash show notes. 
episode number 14, which is the food allergy episode. Yeah. And then we'll put the nutrition information and all the other wonderful links that I got. I got some cool information from like Tufts and Tufts University is awesome. They're really good about that kind of stuff. There's a really, we'll put the, this in too, but there's a blog, I believe that Tufts University runs, which is really cool. It's great information. Also very good to send clients to. So we'll, we'll, we'll make sure you guys get that. But yeah, if, and honestly, like if you have a really tough case, recommending a nutrition consultation is, is not a bad idea, mm-hmm. especially if you've got a patient with concurrent diseases. So oh, yeah. get a nutrition consult. Yes. Sometimes it takes a while, but I, they're definitely, they're worth it. I've seen some patients just blossom after getting yeah. the nutrition consultation. So we've done that a lot for like patients who have trouble eating with like kidney disease and mm-hmm. stuff. And it's actually pretty great. Cause even some of the nutritionists, I think OSU, like Ohio state university mm-hmm. nutritionists will do like phone consults for clients, oh, which nice. is great. Nice. So, um, we do recommend that a lot too. So yeah, when in doubt nutrition consult all the way, like, especially if you're battling some pretty nasty diseases, especially like PLE, we get nutrition consults pretty much on all those. Yeah. If we can, if, if clients are up for it. <laughs> and if so. you, um, we'll put the resources on the page, but if you see that something that you guys use all the time is missing, just send us an email. So podcast at internal medicine for vet just send us your resources and you know, we'll, we'll take a look at them and if, you know, we don't have any issues with it, we can definitely put it on the website or on the, the show notes as well. So um, that goes for any of the episodes. If you have really good resources that you'd like to share, we, we may just in- incorporate them into our episodes. So yes, please. Cause we're always learning. So. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. All right. I think that is the end of this week's episode. Anything else you can think of that we need to talk about, Ms. Jordan? No, I think we're good. We will, like I said, put all of our resources on the show notes page. And then, yeah, please let us know if you have anything else to add. But other than that, we will talk at you next week. So for next week, our plan is to to talk about the IBD. So inflammatory bowel disease, um, which totally ties into this week's episode. So it'll be the next one in our GI series that we're doing. Yeah, because food allergies generally like <laughs> lead to this. Because I'm sure people are going to be at the end of this episode being like, well, what if a food trial doesn't work? Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. What do you do What next? do you do? Jordan and Yvonne. We'll talk about that <laughs> in the next episode. Woo! <laughs> All right, guys. Have a great week. Keep learning. Keep being the rock star technicians that you are. And we'll talk to you next week. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.